Good morning, Bethel. All right, so this morning, our scripture reading is 2 Peter 1, verses 12 to 21. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's on page 1018. So 2 Peter 1, 12 to 21, that's on page 1018 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Okay, beginning in verse 12 of 2 Peter chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, that you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced By the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Morning, everybody. Good to see you all. All right, so we are beginning this uh, Sola series today for the month of October, as has already been mentioned a couple times. And it's in honor of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So little did Martin Luther, at that time a little-known monk, know that nailing his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, kind of like a blog post, you know, like a blog post going crazy viral, that would be the equivalent today. Little did he know that it would set off such a massive world-changing movement. So speaking of movements, if you haven't gotten a copy of this little book, so even if you're visiting with us this morning, Um, feel free to grab one of these. They're out in the lobby at the desk. Um, If you know somebody that um, would benefit from this book, uh, feel free to take a couple copies, and and you're welcome to give them out. So it's a brief, winsome, um, helpful introduction to the significance of the Protestant Reformation and uh, really clear on the gospel and just helpful, encouraging. So written by a guy named Michael Reeves. He's a professor in the UK. So, Protestant Reformation. Do you call yourself a Protestant? (laughs) If so, why? What are you protesting? That's kind of what the word means, right? So, some history is in order, right? I mean, history matters. Can I get an amen besides Craig Cassidy, the history teacher? Um, (laughs) Winston Churchill famously said, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. 
So the matters of the Protestant Reformation are incredibly important, eternally important even. They're matters of life and death, heaven and hell. And there are heroes of our faith who spilled their blood. We've heard about that already. We've sung about it already. Um, they spilled their blood over these issues. So we often think of Martin Luther as the catalyst of the, the Reformation, and certainly he was, but we, um, he wasn't the first. So <clears throat> there were others who challenged the corruption and unbiblical practices of the Roman Catholic Church before him. John Wycliffe lived in the 1300s. <clears throat> you may know that name, but he's known as the Morning Star of the Reformation. He was a professor of philosophy at Oxford, but he ended up studying theology and biblical studies rigorously. He became profoundly bothered by how far the Roman church had veered from biblical Christianity, and so he wrote to attack those corruptions in the Catholic church. And so he wrote some books, and even more importantly, he worked to translate the Bible into the vernacular so that common people could read it for themselves because it was in Latin, right? The Latin Vulgate was the main translation that was used for a long, long, long time. So at the time, it was illegal by Roman Catholic law to translate the Bible from the Latin Vulgate into the vulgar common language of the people, and that was a heresy punishable by death. So we know that Wycliffe's writings influenced a guy named Jan Hus, who lived in Prague. And he ended up kind of living out these Reformation principles, and he was executed for it in 1415. And we know that Martin Luther was then later influenced in the 1500s by Hus and Wycliffe. So here's the thing. Were they making mountains out of molehills? Like, were these hills worth dying on? So we're going to take one week each to understand the five hallmarks of the Reformation. Um, they're a helpful summary, not just of historical doctrine, but a helpful summary of our faith. So sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola gratia next week, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola dea gloria, to the glory of God alone. And we'll take a passage from the Bible that just embodies and summarizes these truths, and we'll unpack it as um, part of our study for the morning. So these are cent central to our faith, central to us also faithfully handing our faith on to successive generations. So we've got to be able to study and hold firmly guarding the good deposit and then share and hand down guarding future generations from ignorance and error. So just for what this is worth, you know, I know we've got probably a broad spectrum of where you're at with um, some of you may have come from a Roman Catholic background and, and you might just feel like, yeah, let's say it. Others of you have friends and you're like, whoa, what are you doing? You're bashing it. So the point is not to bash the Catholics, okay? There are certainly many things that we can agree on with Roman Catholics, like the Trinity, the deity of Christ. I mean, we could go on. There are certainly many things we can link arms with, with Roman Catholics, pro-life causes and the definition of marriage and care for the poor and vulnerable. And please know that I know that there are people in the Roman Catholic Church who genuinely trust in Christ alone for their justification before God. And also we should say, honestly, that there are certainly people in Protestant and evangelical churches that don't understand 
Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. And there's cheap imitation stuff in the Protestant church like fire insurance pseudo-faith. That's the very thing that James is warning about, this dead faith in, in James chapter, chapter 2. But when Roman Catholics trust in Christ alone for salvation, for righteousness before God, they are believing better than their church teaches. When Protestants have fire insurance pseudo-faith, they misunderstand and misrepresent what their church teaches. In fact, they misrepresent the gospel and Christ. So the reasons for the Reformation are not trivial. We can't just wave away our differences as minor, but we should be humble and charitable and gracious as we dialogue on these things. We certainly need to deal honestly and rigorously because this stuff matters. These are eternally significant matters of authority and truth and how we can be made right with God. So four points this morning. Um, The first two are kind of helping us get oriented to what Sola Scriptura is all about. It's kind of historical, theological. And then we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 21, and consider the issues of revelation and authority there. And then finally, um, we'll seek to ensure this isn't just a doctrine in our heads, but a living truth that's giving us life as it ought to. So we'll dive in. There's an outline in the bulletin if that's helpful for you, or you can follow along on the screen here. But first off, um, we need to make clear what we don't mean. Okay, so what does sola scriptura not mean? And we've got to be honest about something here. Oftentimes in debate or in argument, And I think all of us can be guilty of this. So we need to be honest with ourselves. We tend to caricature the argument of our opponent and then knock down the straw man that we've set up. Right? But that's not fair. It's not helpful. It's not honest. So again, let's be honest. This happens all the time. It happens in in kind of Catholic-Protestant debate where Protestants caricature Roman Catholics and Roman Catholics caricature Protestants. And so in this series, I hope that we'll work hard to avoid those pitfalls. I'm reading a lot of Roman Catholic um, and official church documents and dogma firsthand so as to use their own words and not misrepresent in the interest of, you know, scoring a point or something like that. That's not the purpose here. So if if you're going to look into these things, don't just Google it. (laughs) That could be dangerous. There's all kinds of, you know, hacks on their personal blogs, just whatever. Go and read official Roman Catholic doctrine, canons of church councils, the catechism of the Catholic Church. Don't just read what Protestants say about Roman Catholics. Um, Some are more careful than others in doing so, but... Sometimes, again, it's the straw man thing that's, that's cheap. So, unfortunately, some of the caricatures are representative of certain swaths of Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. But what we need to do is learn to kind of deal with not the worst representation on your side and the best on mine, but the best representation on both sides. And then we can really get somewhere in the dialogue. So, Often Roman Catholics hear us say sola fide, and they hear fire insurance religion. And sadly, they're right. 
There are pl- there's plenty of easy believism out there that just passes for evangelical Christianity. It's like this gospel get out of hell free card. You put it in your back pocket and then you just doesn't make any difference in your life. But hey, you walk the aisle, you prayed the prayer, so you're good. Same thing happens with sola scriptura. Sola scriptura does not mean that the meaning of the text is in the mind of the beholder. Like this is a wax nose that anybody can kind of just form and shape to their own interpretive liking. It doesn't mean that everyone can interpret as is right in their own eyes. So can you see how Rome views Sola Scriptura as the spring of all manner of, of like doctrinal chaos? And sometimes they're right. I mean, many Roman Catholics say Martin Luther and the Reformers, they opened Pandora's box when they rejected the authority of the Roman Catholic Church and its magisterium. Magisterium, by the way, is, is the teaching office of the Roman Church. So it consists of the Pope and the bishops. So as one theologian put it, in protesting the authority of Rome, the Reformers left, the, left themselves without a referee. So can you see how this is a criticism we shouldn't take lightly? So sometimes we Protestants, particularly evangelicals, can be prone to this me and my Bible thing, this individualism that's the equivalent to tradition be damned. I'm, I'm just, it's just me and my Bible. No respect for traditional orthodoxy. And you know what? When Christians sometimes disagree on a point, sometimes something pathetically minor, they just often start a new church or even a new denomination. No wonder there's something like 9,000 Protestant denominations, and there's only one Roman Catholic church. So they have a point, right? So let's be sure we make clear what we don't mean by sola scriptura. The Reformers never meant by sola scriptura, only me and my Bible. I don't need the church. I can be an interpretive island all to myself. I don't need Orthodox tradition to guard and guide me. I don't need others to understand the Bible rightly. So as one theologian, Kevin Van Hooser, says, Sola Scriptura is not a blank check that individuals can cash in to fund their own idiosyncratic readings. So all of this stuff, all this misrepresentation, would more properly be titled Solo Scriptura. And that's not what we believe or teach. Okay, so what do we believe and teach. Sola Scriptura, what does it mean? Well, when the Reformers meant, and what we mean by it is this, only Scripture is our first and final authority. Okay, it's our, ultimately, our ultimate authority. There's no other authority on par with Scripture. Okay, all other authorities are secondary and must submit to and uphold the authority of God's Word. So Westminster Confession summarizes it well which is an incredibly important summary of Orthodox tradition that we hold dear. So the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. So... On the other hand, the Roman Catholic view understands sacred tradition to be equally authoritative as Scripture. So this is quoting from the Catechism of 
the Catholic Church, paragraph 97, sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God. And we say, no. We protest that, right? So tradition is important, but it is not on par with Scripture in authority, in authority and infallibility. Nothing else is. Sola Scriptura. So tradition is vitally important. We would be fools to disparage Orthodox tradition. We're not the smartest generation to walk the earth or the only faithful ones. Not to mention the fact that if, if you did this solo Scriptura thing, you'd have to reinvent the wheel every generation. That's crazy. We're, we're on the shoulders of giants here. But here's the difference. Tradition has testimonial authority. The Word of God alone has judicial authority. It's a big difference. So we sit under and are judged by and shaped by the Word. And the Roman Catholic Church, on the other hand, teaches that the Roman magisterium, again, that popes and bishops have the ability to faithful faithfully interpret Scripture. So their sacred tradition is infallible and thus of equally authoritative nature with Scripture. So we reject that and affirm sola scriptura. Only Scripture is infallible and finally authoritative like 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. That can't be said about the magisterium, about their interpretation. But here's the rub. Scripture's got to be interpreted, right? So the question becomes, are the people of God able to understand Scripture? Or must that interpretation only be entrusted to the popes and bishops? You see how that's the question that follows? So we believe that Scripture is sufficiently clear. It's the doctrine of the clarity or perspicuity of Scripture. It's sufficiently clear to be understood and applied. Everything needed for life and godliness is found in Scripture. Enabled by the Spirit of God, it takes place in the context of churches that embrace historic orthodoxy. So in other words, tradition matters. It does not have magisterial authority, but it does have ministerial authority. Orthodox tradition is a servant so that we can faithfully interpret the Bible. The church matters. We're not islands interpreting the Bible in a personal you know, vacuum bubble. And Ephesians 4 says that when Jesus rose from the grave and was exalted, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So Scripture is sufficiently clear for all believers, illuminated by the Spirit, to understand what they need to know and to be saved and to grow in godliness. Remember what Paul wrote to Timothy? He says, Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. That's what the sacred writings do. They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So it's no wonder that Paul commended the Jews in Berea 
Remember? In Acts 17, he says, These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. These were common, normal, everyday people. And Paul doesn't say, wait, 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 no, no, this is my job to tell you what this means or the job of some magisterium. No, he commends those noble Bereans because they examined what he was saying to see if it was true, if it squared with Scripture, because Scripture is the final authority. And no wonder, again, that Paul wrote what he did to Timothy when he said, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So in other words, it's possible. You are able to do this. Now, again, we should be clear about the differences here. The issue of the Roman Catholic magisterial authority is not limited to interpretation. They also claim to be a locus of revelation. Okay? Revelatory authority. So where does the Immaculate Conception come from? It's not from Scripture. It comes from sacred tradition. Revealed by God to the magisterium, Mary was born without original sin. That's what the Immaculate Conception refers to. It doesn't actually refer to the incarnation. I used to think that. It's outside of Scripture. But again, the magisterium is this locus of revelatory authority. The assumption of Mary. Mary was just taken up. Where does that come from? Well, because... The magisterial authorities can, be, can receive this revelation. Even the doctrine of papal infallibility, again, it comes, it's as if that was revealed to a pope, and now it becomes doctrine. So anyway, we need to see what script, sola scriptura means and what it doesn't mean. And we protest the fact that what they say as far as sacred tradition being on par with sacred scripture, and we say sola scriptura. Scripture alone is inspired by God. The church doesn't add any new content to the inspired, infallible scripture. It can only make clear what is there. It has no capacity to give new authoritative light. So scripture is the sun. The church is the moon. It's not another source of light. Um, any light we have is reflection of God's truth revealed to us in the word alone. So there's no other magisterial authority, only ministerial authority. And so let's take a look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Again, I know this is a little bit different than what we're used to. We usually just have a passage and we walk through it. But I think there's benefit in understanding what we believe, why we believe it, and the history of these things um, so that we hold fast to sound doctrine. So, <clears throat> where is the locus of revelation and authority? Let's look at 2 Peter 1, 12 to 21, and see, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Peter's perspective here for us. He writes, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, 
though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Probably a reference to John 21. Do you remember when Jesus told Peter that he was going to die following him? And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time, again, by means of my writing, to recall these things. This is obviously his passion here. If you look down at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, you see the same theme repeated. Look at verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And then he goes on to basically say, don't be deceived. So Peter knows that he's close to death. And as an apostle and eyewitness to the Lord's life and death and resurrection and ascension, What's going to keep future generations faithful to Jesus? There's no hint of anything close to a papal succession and the authority of the church. He wants them to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Right there you see it in verse 2 of chapter 3. Remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He had already written in chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Where do we find that knowledge? In Scripture. So the assumption is that the Scriptures, and at this point, obviously, it's the Old Testament Scriptures, and the commandments of Jesus, which become the Gospels, and the Apostles, the rest of the books that become the New Testament, are what they need and what we need. In other words, they can understand the Scripture. Scripture is sufficiently clear. They don't need a magisterium to tell them what to believe. And again, Peter clearly assumes that that authoritative teaching is in the Word and in the words of Jesus and of the Apostles. Look at how he goes on in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What does that refer to? What is Peter referencing? Go ahead, say it. Transfiguration. Yep. Yep. So we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there were false teachers attempting to influence Peter's readers, and he combats their heresy by appealing to the Old Testament Scriptures and to his apostolic authority as an eyewitness. He knew he was going to die. 
So the eyewitnesses wanted to leave an authoritative testimony of Jesus' words and works and their meaning for future generations. So in the words of Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the Bible knows nothing of Peter's role carrying on down through the ages by apostolic succession from Peter to pope after pope after pope. The issue here is I'm leaving you an authoritative and understandable interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures and eyewitness testimony of the life and teachings and death and ascension, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So Peter himself is pointing the people of God to the word of God not to his successor or the authority of the church even. So the point is, after I'm gone, it's not you'll have my papal successor to guide you. It's the point is you'll have the Old Testament writings and my letters to guide you. So look at the real point of this passage and even kind of the main applicational point of 2 Peter in verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is this light and we should pay attention to it. We will do well to pay attention to it. It is a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. So Scripture and Scripture alone is the locus of God's special revelation to His people. Scripture and Scripture alone is the locus of God's authority over His people. Tradition is not on par with Scripture. Once the apostles died out, there were no more eye, there's no more eyewitness testimony. And so therefore, there's no more revelation to be received that would be normative and binding over all of God's people. So Jesus himself, during his earthly ministry, after his resurrection, before his ascension, he showed the early disciples what the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to. Remember the road to Emmaus? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in, the, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Look at 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the apostles were the ones entrusted with and responsible for preserving this testimony for future generations until the second coming of Christ. So they weren't producing this of their own will, but they were speaking from God. So that's where the authority lies as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. So inspiration applies to the Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, alone and not to the so-called authoritative, infallible interpretation of the magisterium. So the point is that all interpretation must be measured by apostolic, like eyewitness, Uniquely authorized and inspired, that standard, not by any other standard. Remember how Jude wrote, 
The faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. And that is found in sacred scripture. So finally here, just to draw this to a close, scripture alone, sola scriptura, means that the scripture alone is the source of our life. Okay, so here is where we see, and maybe you see it already. Russell alluded to this in the way that he articulated things earlier this morning. Sola Scriptura is a servant of all the other solas. So how else do we know that sola, sola gratia is true? How are you going to know that's true? Where is, the, where is our source of revelation and authority? It's one place. Scripture alone. Where else do we find Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which is our text for next week, or Ephesians 2, 1 to 10? For by grace you have been saved, by grace alone, through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why do we believe in sola fide? Scripture alone. Romans 3, 28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Why do we believe solus Christus? Jesus himself said it. His words are recorded, preserved for us in the word alone. Apostle John, eyewitness, recorded what Jesus said. He said, you search the scriptures, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, because they actually raised tradition above scripture. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And Jesus also said in John's gospel, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through Christ alone. So if all is of grace received only by the empty hands of faith, only by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, then who gets the glory for this great salvation? Sola Dea Gloria. All the glory goes to God alone. So as we approach the Lord's table, if on the basis of Scripture alone, you have trusted in Christ alone to save you from your sins by His glorious grace alone. Let's joyfully and thankfully eat and drink and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes to the glory of God alone. Amen.